Darker Days of Dorothy Gale Aftermath For Episode 45 Chapter 39 The Falsifier, The Queen, and the Giant's Well Encantos 29, 30, and 31 of Dante's Inferno Malibulge, Ring 10 the falsifiers. So here's the thing. This one goes a little long. I actually uh, kind of forgot this chapter covered three cantos. So I wrote this long-winded summary of Canto 29 partly to fill time. And then, when I got to the end of 29, I realized the error of my ways, and I had, like, two more cantos left to summarize. So, yeah, it's a bit of a longer one, uh, but uh, I think we'll be okay. So, if the Dante's Inferno stuff isn't quite your jam, you're gonna want to skip ahead. Quite a bit, actually. I, I don't know how far you'll need to skip but it's it's probably going to be pretty far. If you come here just for the Dante, then you are in luck, because I've got a lot of it this time around. In Canto 29 of the Inferno, Dante laments the torture of one of his kin that they passed by earlier. This was Jerry Del Bello. Probably butchered that name, but I think you're... Pretty used to that by now. Anyways, old Jerry was murdered and never avenged. I guess back then it was sort of a eye-for-an-eye type of thing. You know, if you knew someone that was murdered, it was kind of your right to go out and avenge their death. Crazy, I know. Virgil pretty much tells Dante to just let it go. Come on, man. He's none of your concern at this point. So come on. Let it go. And so they move on and enter in to the tenth Bolgia of Ring 8. This is the Falsifiers. I know I said in the last Aftermath that we hit peak violence for Dante and the Inferno, and I meant it, but that doesn't mean there isn't a little bit more grossness to be had. As they enter this place, they are greeted by the smell of putrid decay and rotting flesh. Dante encounters two souls sitting together. I picture them back to back and leaning on each other. These two fallen souls sit in the darkness. They are covered in scabs and scratch violently at themselves, as they itch uncontrollably. Dante compares the action of them picking their scabs as like that of scaling fish. The falsifiers are guilty of what Dante considers the most heinous type of fraud. These are the alchemists, the counterfeiters, the impostors, and the liars. Their punishment is sickness and disease. He focuses largely on the alchemists here, 
But the aforementioned sins are here as well. These sinners are lepers. Not like they are lepers in that leprosy was their sin. I mean, that would be a a pretty unjust God, right? Punishing someone for having a disease. Not cool. Not cool at all. So no, the punishment is leprosy. The symbolism behind this is one of the most poetic. The falsifiers corrupted the natural order. And so they are plagued with an affliction that corrupts their natural order, i.e. their bodies. As usual, Dante gets a chance to hang with one of these sinners for a moment. Here he meets the alchemist Capoccio. Again, probably butchered it. It might be Capoccio. I don't I don't know things. I don't know things. Anyways, old Cappy here was a Florentine who wound up getting burned at the stake in Siena sometime in 1293. It's also said that he was once a classmate of Dante's. Our poetic leader considered alchemy to be such a vile act of arrogance against God that God was the only one worthy of punishing the sin. Capoccio, or Capoccio, admits to his alchemical ways and lists a few others down here as well. He name drops Stricca, Nicolo, Caccia de Asian, and Abagliato. I know, I know. I, I couldn't resist the Abagliato. It just sounds so... It's, it's fun to say. Anyways, outside of just having a boss name, there doesn't seem to be much known about Stricca. Nicola was a member of, get this, the Spendthrifts Brigade. Yes, this lame-named brigade was a group of sinners punished in the Fourth Circle. You know, where the Spendthrifts were, a.k.a. the Hoarders and the Wasters. And if you're wondering why he's so far away from his fellow spendthrifts, have no fear. I'm here to tell you. Nicky was a counterfeiter. So there's a little bit of overlap. I'm not entirely sure how justice is doled out or calculated in Dante's version of the afterlife. You know, like that creepy uncle of yours that spends his time burying his gluttonous face in a bucket of chicken while watching pornography? Does he get punished for gluttony? Or does he get punished for lust? I don't know. Someone could probably tell you. Someone more educated could probably really inform you on Dante's logic. But that's clearly not this guy. I'm pointing to myself, by the way. Anyways... The point is, Knickknack's being punished for counterfeiting. Also, he apparently introduced cloves to Sienna. Fun, right? Useful knowledge, I'm sure. I bet you woke up this morning saying to yourself, I sure hope someone tells me who introduced cloves to Sienna. And lo and behold, I came through just for you. I guess he likes to cook pheasants over a nice, aromatic, and flavorful bed of cloves, which at the time were pretty, pretty, pretty pricey. 
I'm not sure if seasoning meats is considered alchemy, but if it is, I think hell might be full of chefs. We hear a little bit about Caccia de Asiano. Again, I know, names, whatever. I don't understand how families or houses or namesakes worked back in Dante's time. This dude was from Siena in the 12th century. He was a member of the Cacciocanti family, which was also known as Caccionemico di Trovato Delgi Sicilengi? I don't know. Something like that. Anyways, he was a part of Wait for It. The Spendthrift Brigade. Yes, he was also a member of that stupid thing that I mentioned earlier. He's brought up here, but is actually located with the panderers and seducers. Guilty of prostituting his sister, Gizolobella, to Obizo. And you can check that out in Canto 18. That first appearance of him, that is. That would be episode 38-2, Aftermath, for chapters 31 and 32, The Sad Story of Amelia Driscoll and the False Flattery of Tipitarius. And here we are, 11 cantos later, still in Malibolge. Seven chapters later. Still in Malibulge. Anyway, I think Noodles El Dante here just felt like bringing this guy back up because he liked pointing out the douchebaggery and arrogance of these Sienese peeps. I can't say that I really fault him for that, however. When you're an artist, or an author, or a poet, or whatever, and you've got a grudge to bear, well then you bear it, and you bear it good. Also mentioned as part of the Spendthrift Brigade is Abagliato. See, I said it normal that time. It's all all good. It's all good. Anyways, there's not much to say about him. Probably just as bad as the others mentioned here. Maybe worse. What has two thumbs and doesn't know much about Abagliato? This guy. I just raised my thumbs and pointed to myself. Just just so you know, I was talking about myself here. I don't know much about Abagliato. So let's let's continue, shall we? One last thing before we move on to the darker days stuff. If you want more information on Dante's Inferno, you can check out the Dark Day's website. I have compiled a nice little compendium of sorts of my favorite sources, along with a brief summary slash review of all of them. Among my favorite sources is the Baylor University YouTube channel and their 100 Days of Dante series. Each video is around 10 minutes long and features a different speaker. The speaker for Canto 29, Dr. Amanda Clark, Kind of goes off on a slight preachy tangent about COVID and lab leaks. It actually feels like she just wanted to be topical. Not my favorite episode, but 
does raise an interesting question. How would Dante feel about modern medicine? I mean, that's alchemy. If some rich dude out there takes the blood of his 17-year-old son and has it pumped into himself because he's convinced it will help him achieve everlasting life, does that make him an alchemist? Or is it only the doctors that help him do that? I mean, turning old blood into young blood or young blood into old blood by way of creepy vampiric transfusion or transmogrification would sort of be alchemy, wouldn't it? Probably oversimplified that process, but hey, that's just what you get from me sometimes. On the less disturbing side of modern medicine was the creation of ibuprofen or aspirin alchemy. And should the doctors and scientists involved in their creation be sentenced to eternal damnation with the rest of the falsifiers? In Dante's eyes, of course. And what about vaccinations? What about people that use medicine or get vaccinated? Just some food for thought. Also, you know, get vaccinated and all that. The government isn't chipping you, and if they want to track you, they can do that in much much easier ways. They can just hit up some data brokers, check some satellites, or do whatever else it is they do. And no, you're not going to turn autistic if you get vaxxed. And neither will your kids. And please, take the Advil when you need it, and drink the NyQuil when it helps. The point is, I just wonder what Dante would think about modern medicine. <laughs> so look at that. I got topical. I guess that makes me a, maybe a little bit of a hypocrite for criticizing Dr. Amanda, what's her name, for being topical. Anyways, as if all that wasn't long and rambly enough for you, there's more. I haven't even touched on Cantos 30 and 31. I'll do my best to make this quick. Dante and his buddy Virgil decide it's a good idea to venture further into the depths of the Eighth Circle. They come across a group of sinners who are falsifiers known as the Impersonators. These, of course, would be identity thieves. This brand of falsifier isn't afflicted with the same leprous scabs as those that came before, though. Instead, this group rages and fights each other with madness and insanity. They bite and tear and claw at each other like wild animals. Of the sinners they meet down here is Mira, or Myra. I don't, again, names. You, you know, you know me. I can't do names, okay? Anyways, the story of Mira is, ah, uh, well, uh, you know, it, it's the kind of thing she Probably therapy would have been good for her. So, you know, uh, you see, Mai Mai was in love with her father. So much so that she disguised herself and tricked him into, well, you know, uh, smooching her. Trying to keep this thing PG, okay? All right? Okay, okay, fine. She fucked his fucking brains out. You happy? If you have kids nearby or in the car with you, I apologize. Go ahead and blame those other people. You know, those people that thought the term smooching was too childish. Anyways, 
When her padre figured out what happened, he chased her with a sword. Somewhere down the line, she turned into a tree, gave birth to her father's son. No, grandchild. No, son. Grandchild. Son. Grandchild. Son. You get the idea. Prime example of impostering. They also meet Master Adam. Now, this dude was a falsifier of coins. Yep, another counterfeiter. He's like totes thirsty, bro. Like unbearably, unquenchably thirsty. If he was on Gilligan's Island, he would have a ton of money, and they would call him Thirsty Howell III. Adam points out a couple of liars. Falsifiers of words. Such as Potiphar's wife who lied about some dude named Joseph trying to seduce her, and Sinon, who was the dude that got the Trojans to take the big wooden horse into the city, and I think we all know what happened there. Anyways, Adam and Sin Sin get into it as Dante watches like it's the finale of the Real Housewives of Hell. Virgil gets a little uppity here and tells Dante, not cool to listen to this nonsense, bro. I'm guessing Virgil would frown on every reality show ever made. And that's okay. I, fr I frown on most of them myself. Just not my jam. Also, to be fair, Virgil would probably frown on everything in modern society. He, he, he would just frown on entertainment in general, I think. Anyways, the punishments here are all fitting of their respective crimes. Thirsty Master Adam, which would be an awesome name for a dope MC, is thirsty because in life he denied others of their satisfaction and desires by creating fake money. And so he's denied his own desire and satisfaction in death. Something like that, anyway. I kind of feel like this punishment is light when compared to, you know leprous scabs. But hey, I'm no poet. I'm no theologian. So what do I know? Not much. As for the confused rage and madness of the imposters, that's because in life they caused harm and confusion to everyone they encountered. So here in hell, they must experience a similar harm and confusion as they attack each other. The liars like Sinon, 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 anyways, the liars like this guy, suffer from an intense burning fever. We all know the old saying, right? Liar, liar, the restless inner turmoil that you experience from constantly having to keep up with your lies in order to maintain false narratives will result in a punishment in the afterlife that represents the destructive nature of your false words and how they consumed and harmed you and everyone around you. <sighs> yeah, I'm pretty sure that's how that saying goes. Or maybe it's like, liar, liar, brains on fire. <laughs> I'm not trying to brag, but I think I summed up their punishment better than Dante could have ever imagined. Just saying. Moving on to Canto 31. Dante and the Verge meet up with 
three big giants. Dante's all like looking off in the distance and sees those big old towers. And he's all like, whoa, are those towers? And then Virgil's all like, nah, man, those be giants. Then, as though he just took a swig of rocket fuel malt liquor, Dante's all like, damn. It's a news radio joke. It doesn't really matter. Like, two people are going to get that. Anyways, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here. You're probably tired of this by now, if you're still listening at all. The three giants are as follows. Nimrod, Ephialtes, probably butchered it, and Antaeus. Nimrod was responsible for building the Tower of Babel. That's a pretty cool story, actually. The TLDR of it, if you don't know, is he got a bunch of people together to build a tower to the heavens. God wasn't too stoked for that idea, so he made them all speak different languages. And because they were unable to communicate with each other, they were unable to finish the tower. And that's why I can't speak or understand German, because some giant out there wanted a tower. Moving on. Ephialtes is from Greek mythology. He was one of the 100 giants that attempted to overthrow the Olympians by storming Olympus. Hercules and Apollo shot him in the eyes with some arrows, and that was pretty much the end of it. Antaeus was a giant of Greek mythology as well. He was the son of Mother Earth, Gaia, and the god of the sea, Poseidon. He was invincible, so long as he was touching the ground. He challenged travelers to fights, and he always won. That is, until Hercules showed up. Herc figured out that old Auntie here couldn't be killed so long as he was touching his mommy, Earth. So, the original strongman lifted the giant, gave him a giant big old bear hug, and crushed him right then and there. Virgil gets these giants to help them reach the lower pits of hell. And thus ends the Eighth Circle. I know, I know, this, this is going long. And it's packed with information, and honestly, it's been an exhausting one to write and summarize and record. But I've got just just a, a smidge more left to say here. And then we'll then we'll get to the darker day stuff. Anyways, the eighth circle, Malibulge, takes up more than a quarter of the inferno. It's huge, it's expansive, and it's richly detailed and haunting. Canto 31 concludes this epic circle. So before I move on, I'll offer up this brief recap of what we've just witnessed. Okay, so here we go. Malibulge, Circle of Fraud, Dante, considered fraud to be worse than any kind of physical violence, because he felt it was unique to mankind. Angels are incapable of fraudulent behavior, and animals lack the ability or intelligence 
for such deceitful acts. Remember, this is like the Middle Ages, so Dante wasn't privy to David Attenborough, the Discovery Channel, the Planet Earth series, or centuries of scientific studies. I mean, he might have changed his tune if he'd seen a season or two of Meerkat Manor. Anyway, Malibulge. Ten bulges, ditches, trenches, pouches, kind of depends on what sources or translations you prefer. We see the panderers, the seducers, the flatterers, those guilty of simony, the fortune tellers and the diviners, the grafters, the hypocrites, the thieves, the evil counselors, sowers of discord, and we end with the falsifiers, of which there are various types. So, moving on, and on, and on. Chapter 39, one of those chapters that encompasses a lot of stuff. I skipped over a fair amount of the Inferno for this portion of the book, however. If I were to write it again, I think I would have spent more time on the individual punishments. Well, I like to think I would anyway, but truth be told, I'm always pretty tired of Malibulge by the time it ends. It's just so long. You know how it is. You're getting close to the end of the book or a movie or a series, and you've invested so much time and effort, and you just get impatient because you know the stuff that's about to happen is the stuff you really came for. I feel that I hit the important notes, however. Also, this book is long as it is, and three more chapters doling out punishments for different flavors of falsifiers really would have felt excessive and needless. Well, at least to me, anyway. So, here we are. Dorothy and company, surprised to find Vel died so easily. And they're even more surprised when they find out she is not actually dead. Vel's chest wound begins to heal, and our travelers continue on their way. They still feel somewhat disoriented and irritable, but not quite to the extent that they did when they were leaving the lair of the Definers. Sorry, diviners, not definers. You get it, though. They reach a giant circular lake of pristine water. Unsure of where to go or what to do from here, they turn to Vel for some advice. Only to find that she's, uh, you know, kind of taking a turn for the worse. Referencing the Inferno here. We see her covered in scabs. What was just a single scab where she was stabbed in the chest has now blossomed into a thin, leathery shell of dried blood and tissue. And it itches. A lot. Everyone is mortified, horrified, disgusted. Choose your own way to describe how they feel about this. Vel. Well, I guess Siantha assures them that she's okay. She's okay. It, it's nothing to worry about. She tells them it's really nothing. Not a not a thing to nothing. It's okay. It's it's all good. It's all good. She's not in pain, but she 
Oh, she itches. Oh, oh, God, how she itches. Against everyone's protest, she picks at the scab on her chest and pulls it off, revealing moist, pruned flesh. And before long, she's peeled off everything from the neck down. Finally, she pulls the skin on her head off like a cheap rubber mask and throws it to the ground. All the while, she's muttering something about prophecy. I'm going to clarify once more that I dislike a lot of modern takes on The Wizard of Oz for their insistence that Dorothy needs to have some kind of mysterious connection to Oz, or that her mother has some kind of mysterious connection to Oz. I mentioned this in a previous aftermath, probably the Lair of the Diviners aftermath. I I don't consider Dorothy to be necessarily special, or chosen, or even destined or fated to this. In the case of this story, the prophecy is just an outsider or someone that shows up at the right time. If Dorothy had died before now, or if the woodman was on his own here, or if any of Ozma's sisters were making this trek at this moment, they would be the prophecy. The point is, I don't consider this to be specifically tied to Dorothy. If that makes any sense. Okay, back to the chapter at hand. All the water raises from the lake, or the giant's well. Not the giant swell, it's the giant's well. Anyways, it rains down on Sianfa, and as it clears, we see three giants standing behind her. She is going on and on about sacrificing a queen. The giants inform her that Dorothy's not a queen. Sianfa doesn't understand immediately, but when she does figure it out, oh boy, it's too late. And she is promptly crushed by the giant in the center. We all know the biggest influence in my creative writing, or some of my biggest influences, has been my youthful love of video games. The giants here are modeled largely after the Colossuses. Colossuses. Colossi? Anyways, of the beautifully epic Shadow of the Colossus. One of the best reasons to have owned a PS2 or 3 or maybe 4 or 5. I don't know what their backward compatibility stuff. I don't know how their backward compatibility stuff works. Anyways, I'm not sure if it would make much of a difference on a newer console. Anyway, I'm getting off, off, off track here. It doesn't matter. The point is... I imagine Dorothy and her friends standing before these giants inspired by an old game. In the Inferno, each of the giants has specific traits and characteristics. They're each named and have a reason for being where they are. Here, however, they're just giants. They tell Dorothy that they are unable to get her and her friends out of the other side, but they can help them get closer to where they need to be. Each giant takes one of the remaining travelers, and the chapter ends with a little bit of comfort 
and peaceful rest. Of course, we know this peacefulness won't last, because it can't last. So there you have it. If you stuck around for all of this, I appreciate it. You officially rock. If I missed something or failed to address something you feel I should have, or goofed on my summary of Dante's Inferno, which, you know, is always a possibility, let me know, and I will go ahead and fix it. Even if it means re-recording a section of the episode, I will do it, just so I can be accurate. I'm always open to questions, comments, or constructive criticism. You don't have to like the show. Though, I'm not sure why you're listening if you don't. Uh, But anyways, like it or not, you can be nice. I know you can. I believe in you. You're good enough. You're smart enough. And surely someone out there likes you. Or at least politely tolerates you. If you would like to get in touch with me, you can do that by emailing Dark Days of Dorothy Gale at Outlook.com. You can find me on Twitter and TikTok where it's at Dark Dorothy G, though I don't do much on Twitter these days. The TikTok gets updated usually when the episodes get updated, which sometimes is a little bit sparse. I apologize, but it it, it is what it is. Anyways, I alternately appear on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram under the identity of at the ordinary sun. That's S U N. The Instagram feed tends to get a lot of fun dark days themed artwork. The TikTok feed gets like some clips and excerpts from the show as well as the fun artwork. The the, the Twitter feed it's it's pretty barren there. I'm not going to lie. Actually, I purged my account not too long ago. I think at the time of this recording, I have like a whopping 6 tweets. And some of those might actually be replies. So, you know, there's not a whole lot there. Anyways, if social media isn't your jam, there's always the official Dark Days website. That is ddofdg.com. You can also find links to t-shirts and stickers and all kinds of fun stuff there as well. Darker Days of Dorothy Gale used to be on Amazon as an ebook and in paperback form. But at the time of this recording, the podcast is in fact the only way to experience it. If you would like to support the show, buying a t-shirt or a sticker or something is really the coolest way to go. If you want to support my specific brand of creativity in a more direct and financial way, you can find me at buymeacoffee.com slash ordinary sun. Again, that's S-U-N. If you do, I will send you a personal handwritten thank you note, complete with a fun little sketch. I'll even give you a shout out on this year's show if that's something you would like me to do. You might you might get heard by like Five people, so there's there's that. If you don't want to donate to this cause, that is A-OK as well. 
Times be tough, they be, and I'm happy to do this either way. So come back next time, hopefully soon, for Chapter 40 of Darker Days of Dorothy Gale. Cana. Thanks for listening. I love you all.